1: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Lebanon is currently in a deep financial crisis. Its currency literally lost 98% of its value in four years. But if you were sipping cocktails in Skybar, Bar, the renowned tourist hotspot, you'd never know. Will the impact of this summer boom trickle down? And populists on the American right are vibing to a new tune and sending it soaring up the charts. We have a listen to see what all the fuss is about. But first... In sub-Saharan Africa, coups like colds seem to be contagious. Just a month after Niger was taken over by one military junta, Gabon, a nation about a thousand miles further south, has fallen to another.
2: Les élections générales du 26 août 2023 ainsi que les résultats tronqués sont annulés. Les frontières sont fermées jusqu'à nouvel ordre les institutions de la République sont
1: Yesterday, a dozen soldiers appeared on Gabonese national television, announcing the dissolution of all the institutions of the republic. Much like their counterparts in Niger, they cited security concerns as chief among their reasons for seizing power. Soon after, there were declarations of concern from the international community.
2: If this is confirmed, it's another military coup which increase instability in the whole region
1: and condemnations too.
3: The Secretary-General reaffirms his strong opposition to military coups. The Secretary-General calls on all actors involved to exercise restraint, engage in an inclusive and meaningful... These
1: kinds of scenes are becoming familiar in West and Central Africa. But why are military takeovers becoming so common?
2: The coup in Gabon has been a long-time coming.
1: John McDermott is The Economist's Chief Africa Correspondent.
2: The former French colony has been ruled by the Bongo family for more than five decades. Yet while the coup was very much made in Gabon, it is also part of a broader trend.
1: Okay, John, why has there been a coup in Gabon?
2: There are short and long-term causes. In the longer term, the Bongo dynasty has misruled the country. Gabon is a archetypal case of the resource curse, where despite having quite a lot of oil for a small country and a member of OPEC, there's a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of poverty, and French authorities and investigative journalists have regularly alleged that people close to the ruling family have stolen a lot of the oil money. The more proximate reason for the coup is that there were elections held on August 26th, and they looked highly dubious. The internet was shut off on voting day and pro-democracy activists say that the vote was about to be rigged. So rather than accept the official result or get into a long period of wrangling after the vote, it seems like what has happened is that a group of officers have taken matters into their own hands.
1: And they announced the coup yesterday. What's the reaction been like since then?
2: Well, You've seen some of the stereotypical footage that you get after coups in Africa. So you've had the men in uniform appearing on grainy state television announcing the coup. You've had the toppled president, Ali Bongo, under house arrest, appealing for help from abroad. And I'm to send
1: a message to all the friends that we have all over the world to tell them to make noise, to make noise for the people here have arrested me.
2: And then just this morning, you've had footage of officers combing one of his residencies and finding lots of cash. You've also had footage of celebrating crowds. Quite how widespread they are is hard to say. And I think this is important because whenever people in Europe or America see this footage of seemingly deliriously happy Africans on the streets following a coup, it can seem like what's happened reflects a popular uprising. And it certainly reflects a degree of popular discontent. But my sense here is that what's happened in Gabon is more of a palace coup than a popular revolution. The putative leader of the coup, Brice Olugu Ngoema, is reportedly a cousin of Ali Bongo, the president he just toppled. And because he was the head of the elite Republican Guard, he was part of this circle of influence close to the president. So this is not a revolution by any means.
1: You said that Gabon is part of a broader trend. How so?
2: Well, zooming right back... In the latter half of the 20th century, coups were fairly common across the continent. Political scientists reckon there were about 40 attempted or successful putches in Africa every decade from the 1960s to the 1990s. Yet at the start of this century, things seem to be getting better. That frequency roughly halved in the 2000s and the 2010s. And there are a lot of reasons for that. African economies, were generally improving. There was a widespread shift from one-party rule to multi-party democracy. And crucial institutions such as the African Union, the continental bloc, and regional organisations were generally pretty swift to come down harshly on any military men that tried to do pitches. The West was also relatively more influential back then and played a role in upholding some of the norms and institutions that kept coups to a minimum. Now, if you you kind of fast forward to the 2020s, where there have already been eight successful coups, if you include Gabon, it seems like a lot of that is going in reverse. African democracy lacks champions, economies are often in a bad state, and insecurity, especially in the Sahel, which has seen most of the coups, makes military leaders seem more palatable. And ultimately, like with any skullduggery, if there are no consequences to the act, then you're more likely to do it and others are more likely to copy you. And that's been the case recently with coups across the continent.
1: And John, I assume by consequences you mean military intervention, right? I'm currently in Nigeria and there's certainly been a lot of talk around that in
2: regards to Niger. It's not just military intervention. After coups, you tend to find a spectrum of responses from tut-tutting to sanctions to potential sending of troops. But this gets to the difficult political dynamics faced by a lot of the African countries around the states where there have been coups. So in the wake of the coup in Niger in July, for instance, ECOWAS, the regional bloc currently headed by Nigeria, suggested that it would prepare a military intervention. And it seemed like the West, or at least France, was going to be supportive of that But in recent weeks, they've gotten cold feet. And I think this partly shows the weak leadership on the continent and its failure to have a kind of strong and consistent position against putches. But it also shows that there are genuinely difficult political choices to make for African leaders. And they see that quite a lot of their populations, as we have reported in a recent poll done for us by Premise a research firm, that there can be quite a lot of support for coup d'etats on their streets, especially coup d'etats that seem to be going against the West.
1: So if this really does seem to be a trend, where might we see the next coup?
2: Well, I don't know if we should be getting into a game of coup bingo, but we can look at some of the data over the past few decades. And since 2000, roughly two-thirds of all successful coups in Africa have been in Francophone countries. Since 2020, that share rises to seven in eight. Now, that might be a coincidence, but I think it has something to do with France-Afrique, which is the name given to how France has managed its former colonies since their independence. There is a sense in these countries that France has a much more interventionist approach than, say, Britain has, and that it is much more likely to prop up banal and pliant elites, which then leads to popular discontent and support for coups, even if not outright coups themselves. So who might be next? I don't know. Few saw Gabon coming this week. But if I were an aging dictator in a francophone country, I might want to check the loyalty of my army. John,
1: thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Ori.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovation's paradise. Where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. Where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.
3: This summer I traveled to Lebanon. Now, if you've been reading the news, you know the country is in one of the worst depressions in modern history caused by a financial crisis that started four years ago.
1: Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist.
3: But what's odd this summer is that there are parts of the country, the parts of the country frequented by tourists where you see no signs of that. And you see crowds and prices that seem more like Mykonos or the French Riviera than a country mired in depression. Hotel rooms are full. They can run 400 to $500 a night. Flights from nearby Dubai can be $1,000 each way. The beach clubs that dot the Mediterranean coast, they're packed. I spoke to one visitor who called a popular place, looking for a last-minute booking in July, and the receptionist laughed and asked if he meant July of next summer. You walk through the restaurants and bars in neighborhoods like Jumeze and Makhayel in Beirut, very popular neighborhoods for nightlife, and they are overflowing. Into the streets. There's a beloved nightclub called Skybar, which reopened this summer after a three year hiatus. Partygoers on a rooftop sip exotic cocktails and dance all night, and the roof is ablaze with neon. Even while on the streets below, the state can't afford to keep the streetlights on.
1: Greg, we've talked about Lebanon's economic problems on the show before, but just bring us up to speed. Remind us what's going on.
3: It goes back to a state-run Ponzi scheme that was orchestrated for years by the central bank. In short, the central bank was borrowing dollars from commercial banks at very high interest rates, and then it was using that money to finance an enormous trade deficit and to sustain a currency peg that Lebanon established in 1997. The problem was eventually, like all Ponzi schemes, there wasn't enough new money coming in, enough bank deposits in this case, to sustain the scheme. And so it began to collapse in 2019. The country defaulted the next year, the currency peg has become defunct and it's been replaced by a number of quasi-official or black market rates. All of this, of course, has been catastrophic for Lebanese living in Lebanon, but it did have the side effect of making the country quite cheap for outsiders. That has started to change this year. Prices are catching up to reality.
1: And so what's happening now?
3: If you compare this summer to last summer, last year there were various subsidy programs that were implemented after the crisis began to try and keep prices of food and other essentials down. The government has had to abandon those subsidy programs because it can't afford them anymore. Earlier this year, the government increased the official exchange rate from 1,500 lira on the dollar to 15,000, which meant, of course, a tenfold increase in customs duties And the Lebanese lira has just become a very cumbersome medium of exchange because the biggest bill in circulation is now only worth about one dollar. So parts of the economy have dollarized. If you go to restaurants, for example, prices are often listed in dollars rather than lira. This is the third year where inflation has been above 100 percent. And you can imagine what that has done to the Lebanese population. Anyone who had savings in the bank has watched them destroyed. They're worth only pennies on the dollar at this point. Half the country is going hungry. Unemployment is soaring.
1: And yet somehow the tourism sector is doing just fine.
3: It is. The Minister of Tourism thinks visitors will spend about $9 billion this year. That's a sum equal to 40% of Lebanon's GDP. He's expecting 2 million visitors this summer alone. Again, that's a figure equal to about 40% of Lebanon's population. Most of them, as every summer, will be members of the Lebanese diaspora who are coming back to visit. And therein lies a bigger problem with the Lebanese economy. Lebanon doesn't have valuable commodities, but what it does have is this enormous diaspora that it has relied on for decades to send back remittances, bank deposits, to spend money as tourists, which creates its own problem. It's distorted the Lebanese economy to make it feel like the country is richer than it is.
1: And how say? So?
3: If you go back before the crisis, the Lebanese economy was a very unproductive economy, certainly measured in terms of exports. The country had one of the highest trade deficits in the world as a share of GDP. It was able to finance that with expat money that came into the country. Same thing for the currency peg. When you think about countries in the Middle East that have currency pegs, you tend to think of wealthy petro-states in the Gulf. But Lebanon was able to have its own peg as well, which allowed some people to feel like they lived in a middle-income country. They could afford imported brands and foreign holidays. The country, even though it had double-digit unemployment, brought in tens of thousands of migrant workers to pump petrol, to clean homes, to do the sorts of jobs that Lebanese themselves didn't want to do. The country was able to feel like it was much richer than it was, but none of this was sustainable.
1: And is there any hope for tourism to turn this all around in a lasting way?
3: I think it would take more than tourism to turn it around. And I think if all that's happening is diaspora money is flowing into the country, then it's repeating the same cycle of the past few decades. First, a lot of that money is not trickling down to ordinary people, waiters, bartenders, people who work in tourist establishments. They might earn $150 or $200 a month, even though the prices in these establishments have soared over the past year. The money is not flowing to them. The problem is a lot of it is flowing right back out of the country. It's financing consumption in an economy that is still very dependent on imports. So visitors will come, they will buy things, they will consume things, but often those things are imported from abroad. Unless that changes, unless the country is able to put its entire economy on a different path, invest more in creating productive local businesses and fixing the many barriers to that, All of this is just going to be like a a sugar rush, a cup of ice cream on a hot day in the summer, something that you briefly enjoy, but you soon forget.
1: Greg, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours.
0: Rich Men North of Richmond by Oliver Anthony is a song that has racked up more than 48 million streams on YouTube.
1: Claire McHugh writes about culture for The Economist.
0: He's an unknown artist who's practically shot from obscurity to fame overnight. He's the first musician to debut in the number one slot on the Billboard Hot 100 without having had another song in the charts before. And he's now holding number one for a second week in a row.
1: Okay, I think I can guess from what we just heard what this song's about, but tell me, what is it really about? The song is about
0: the struggles of everyday Americans who feel overworked, underpaid, and possibly even overlooked by society. Mr. Anthony sings, your dollar ain't shit and it's taxed to no end. And that's speaking directly to the anger that millions of listeners feel at the moment. They're struggling with high inflation, living costs and a general sense of disillusionment in Washington. And what's interesting to note is that this song's resonated with people beyond America. On YouTube, commenters from Zimbabwe and Britain have said that they feel heard by this music.
1: But there's been plenty of American blues and country music about the struggles of working-class life. It's a constant theme. Why is this song making such a splash?
0: I think the reason this song is so big at the moment is the way it's been promoted. So right-wingers in America have latched onto it and have turned it into this sort of anthem against Washington elites. It even got a mention at the Republican presidential debate last week.
1: So, Governor DeSantis, why is this song... Striking such a nerve in this country right now, what do you think it means?
0: Mr. Anthony, he is a white working class guy from Virginia, and he makes a great poster child for the right wing cause, whether or not he wants to be one. And when he released his video, conservative pundits such as Carrie Lake, an ally of Donald Trump and Matt Walsh shared the video, and this helped propel the song to this meteoric success that we're seeing today.
1: OK, you said whether or not he wants to. Are you suggesting that the singer isn't conservative?
0: Mr. Anthony maintains he is a centrist and he's actually criticised the right for weaponizing his song, as he puts it.
3: But it was funny kind of seeing the response to it. Like, that song has nothing to do with Joe Biden, you know? It's a lot bigger than Joe Biden. Um,
0: that said... The track does parrot frequent complaints heard from populists. For example, he sings about obese people milking welfare funds to buy fudge rounds, which is a type of American cookie. And he also talks about politicians travelling to private islands to abuse minors. That's a reference to Jeffrey Epstein, the sex offender who had ties to Democrat politicians. But Mr. Anthony doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He says he has rejected record deals worth $8 million and that private jets and tour buses don't interest him. That doesn't necessarily mean that conservative voters or right-wing politicians will stop using this music as their theme song,
1: though. So does his success tell us anything about the music industry? I think what it tells
0: us is that the right have found a strategy whereby they boost popular culture that chimes with their message. And this is now playing out on the music charts. This happened before in summer, when Jason Aldean, who is an established country singer, released a song called Try That in a Small Town.
3: Gave me, say one day
1: well,
0: the song is a, a warning to urban protesters, and the video was criticised by many for being racist and for promoting vigilantism. But it shot up to number one when it was promoted by... More conservative politicians on social media. It's worth noting that the song fell out of the charts just as quickly, however. It will be interesting to see if Rich Men North of Richmond can sustain its position at the top of the charts, but it does seem like a template for other songs which the right could jump on to push their message.
1: Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ari. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all of our podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every single day. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really should join the club. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link, as usual, is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business, and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations.